0: Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Our focus today will be on the last half of chapter 3 of the book of Hebrews. This book reads much more like a sermon than it does an epistle. The writer preaches, and preaches with one center, that is Christ. In fact, every sermon ought to have as its center Christ. Uh, Hebrews, in particular, is the ultimate Christ-centered sermon. In fact, what we have in the first couple chapters is this build-up of the person of Christ, that he is superior to all things. And last week, he even came down and got personal with the direct listeners there and spoke of Moses, and as great and glorious as Moses was, Jesus is still the more glorious, and all trust, faith, and hope and rest should be in Christ. The book is about Christ, Christ, Christ. So, with that anchor, that soul anchor, the author can then challenge us with regard to our perseverance. That is, you've been saved by Christ, you rest in the Lord, so now go and live like it. Uh, persevere in the faith that is linked to your hope, your confidence, Christ. It's this constant balance in the book of Hebrews between our promised security in Christ and our needed Perseverance. Christ promotes our perseverance. And in particular, today, the text speaks about an occasion in the past of our forefathers, quoting an actual psalm, psalm, 90, psalm 95, about a time when they hardened their hearts. And for us today, do not let your heart be hardened. Hear God's Word, Hebrews 3 verses 7 through 19. Father, we are so grateful for your word. It speaks truth, for it is truth. Lord, I pray that our lives would be conformed to it. And I pray, Lord, that you would use this body of believers to transform this world for Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. To this point, three chapters in now, we have seen this resounding theme of Christ as all sufficient. We have also seen Several warnings now, serious and sober warnings about drifting away, about falling away, about not holding fast. And I hope you recognize by now that what Hebrews is speaking of is not the high level of uh, doctrine that we refer to as election, but rather specifically to covenant communities responsibility to respond to God. What I mean is this. It is clear in the scriptures that the doctrine of election is so, and I know that there are many in our common day, who will say that election simply means God looked down the quarters of time and saw that you would choose him. And then because of that, looking ahead, then chose you. So the onus is on man. I would just say that that is wholly unbiblical. There's nothing in the scripture that remotely resembles that kind of God. In fact, if you read Ephesians 1 and 2, no amount of exegetical gymnastics will get you out of the fact that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He foreknew us means he foreloved us. No does not just mean he knew of, he loved us, put his hand on us, saved us. That's the truth of election that pervades scripture. It's the bedrock. But there are other levels in which the writers of scripture work, the very common levels, and that's what Hebrews is about. Yes, election is true. Prove it about yourself. That's what it's saying. Election's true. We know that God has chosen some to be His, to do the good works that He has given. He will finish the work He has begun. Do the work then. Show forth your election. It's about proving our election. You know, all the talk about election with no talk about obedience is not the biblical structure. The elect will produce obedience. So we, as the people of God, should not lose heart, should not lose the security that comes from the promises of the Word. But let us not lose the fact that perseverance means to cling always and ever to Christ. It's not perseverance and perfection, it's clinging to Christ. When we cling to Christ, perseverance in the faith, your original faith, the hope, the confidence, all that, all those terms he, the Hebrews writer uses. And when that happens, it will produce perseverance in our holiness. It won't well, might, it will. If Christ is your soul anchor, then it will produce, over time, the work that he has begun in you. This is the message to us, the people of God, today. It is as relevant as it ever has been. It's probably more necessary now to speak of this than at other times. Let's look at the text and look at it this way. Because I think it gives us two keys, both implicitly and explicitly, to guarding against a hard heart. The first and foremost one, where we must start is knowing the Scriptures. And I want to use the word know in the biblical sense. That's a thorough integration in your mind and in your heart and in your life. Not just a, an assent, but a knowledge that is personal. And it gives us even details as how we are to look at the Word of God. Just by the wording, we see, first of all, it is understood by the writer of Hebrews, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit himself, but is also then quoting the inspired word of God, showing us the necessity and sufficiency of Scripture. It is inspired, inerrant, and, and infallible. Where is that in the text? Look at verse 7, the first few words. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Notice what it does not say. It does not say, as King David wrote in Psalm 95, verses 7-11, through 11, which is true. This is a direct quote from Psalm 95, 7-11, through 11, that King David wrote. Look what it says. As the Holy Spirit says, the Holy Spirit used David to pen scripture. That's inspiration. That is the doctrine of inspiration. God breathes out his word, and he utilized a human agent to pen scripture. So David's not the primary author of Psalm 95, is he? The Holy Spirit says, and then the quote of Psalm 95 follows. This doctrine is crucial, brothers and sisters, in fact, no pastor should even get in a pulpit if he doesn't believe it. He's wasting his time. I don't have anything to give you from my very limited pool of wisdom, but I have confidence that as I come as a 33-year-old relative punk in the ministry and give you scripture, I recognize that the scripture has the sufficiency. It has the effect. That's why I stand up here, because I think it's God-breathed. Sit down if you don't, is what I say to anyone who wants to get in the pulpit and actually speak a word from God and not think of the Scriptures in the way that the Scripture thinks of itself, is the way God has revealed it to be. In fact, one of my favorite exhortations, biblical exhortations, is when Paul's writing to a young pastor, probably a pastor similar in age to me, maybe even a little older, Timothy. And Timothy had to be a bit overwhelmed. Here he is with the apostles working around. I mean, that's his example to aspire to. And they're around preaching. They come fill in his pulpit one time and then he's gotta get up the next Sunday. Can you imagine that? After Paul. And so here's Timothy uh, receiving an exhortation from Paul. And look what Paul says. He doesn't say, Timothy, really, really rest hard on that book that I gave you that tells you how to be successful in ministry. Really pay attention to chapter seven. He'll give you all sorts of other footnotes that you can follow of successful ministers who will help you grow your church. No, instead, this is what Paul thinks is most important for Timothy to grasp. He says, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture, Timothy, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. There is no greater encouragement to me, a fallible person, to hear that come from the Apostle that it's the Word that's profitable for teaching reproof, for exhortation. The Word of God is inspired. It's from the Holy Spirit. It's directly the revelation of God. And this is not new in Scripture. It doesn't just happen once. Peter says it also. And Peter, of all people, first-hand knowledge and hearing Peter and the Lord Jesus talk, listen to what he says regarding the Word and its sufficiency, its primacy. He says, And we have something more sure, Peter says. In the world of Greek philosophy, we have something more sure, Peter says. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter goes on. Knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men, and he describes inspiration perfectly, But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit uses the unique personalities of the writers of Scripture, guards the Scripture from their error, and inspires it and gives us the very Word of God so we know we have the Word. Therefore, it is without error if it's inspired, and if it's without error, then it's trustworthy, it's infallible. This is the bedrock to keeping a soft heart. You can talk all the psychological babble you want, but you will not have a soft heart if you are not immersed in the word, the supernatural, life-giving, life-changing word of God. That is the start of keeping a soft heart and guarding against a hard one. And I understand that every age has had its critics. You all know them. In fact, the well-known French philosopher Voltaire did in fact say, in another century, there will be no Bible on earth. The problem is, Voltaire wrote that in the 18th century. At last check, we're in the 21st century. Now, between you and the pew and the classrooms in this building, I'll bet we can come up with no less than 300 Bibles. Where's Voltaire? It's also true that the early American philosopher who was lauded, especially in the secular education of our day, Thomas Paine, wrote a book called The Age of Reason. He wrote with pompous arrogance that he himself had done such a service to mankind in his rationality and its application to the book of fiction that he thought was the book of myths, the scriptures as he called them. And he said, I have now gone through, I've gone through the woods with an axe, speaking of the scriptures, and felled trees. Here they lie. They will never grow again, he says. And newsflash for Thomas Paine. The fruit of the Word of God continues to blossom. And this is because it's inspired, it's inerrant, and it's infallible. It is given to us by the Spirit, and it continues today after he is long, long gone. Yes, the Bible's had and continues to have its enemies. Once popular American agnostic in the late 19th century, Robert Ingersoll, made his own Voltaire-like statement when he said, in 25 years, the Bible will be a forgotten book. Thankfully, it is Mr. Ingersoll who is all but forgotten. But the word of God stands forever. And when the people of God actually start believing in their practice, not just speaking it with their mouth, we'll see a reformation like we've never seen. Because people will change. Why aren't we changing? Because we're not in the word for real. No, we got all sorts of days of purpose and days of this and but if it's not rooted in the Word, in a regular diet of it, it won't have its transformational effect. It may start a popular trend, but it will not continue. It will not move and change the world. Only that which is rooted in the, in the never-erring the never erring Word of God that is powered by the Spirit of God. Warfield said, well, inspiration is that extraordinary supernatural influence exerted by the Holy Ghost on the writers of our sacred books by which their words were rendered also the word of God and therefore perfectly infallible. Let's be clear on this. I want to be exceedingly clear because it's a bedrock of our church, let alone, I think, your personal ability to maintain a soft heart. The Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. The Bible teaches this and it is clearly provable. Just because we live in a day where people can write anything about, about anything without credibility, whether it's a piece of trash like the Da Vinci Code, or it's a minister who says, the Bible doesn't speak anything about origins. They're wrong. The scriptures are right. And until the church, again, grabs that again and lives it, we're going to continue to be kind of these quiet little people who just let them take over. That's not the call of the church. Not the call of the church. The Bible is what softens our heart. Take it from that that large macro level down to the micro level of your heart. It's your heart hardened. It's in relationship to your exposure and interaction with God's holy, inspired, supernatural word. and It's beyond just simply reading it every day. That's important, and that's a start. But it's really asking the Lord to teach you from, from his word, to let it be that lamp that guides your step. But let's continue in this, in this uh, pursuit, in this text. We have the bedrock of what the scripture is, inspired and errant, and infallible. But also, what's beautiful about the scriptures is that there is a unified message of salvation from beginning to end, and also, this is always, a relevant, uh, always relevant to every component of your life, no matter what it is. In fact, we know it's unified in that the same salvation that saves us saved our Old Testament forefathers. They look forward to the Redeemer's coming and trusted in in God's provision of the Redeemer. We look back at God's provision of the Redeemer. But the same ethical codes are true to us as they were to them. They didn't get saved by works and following the law. They were saved, or they're God's people, and they lived accordingly. And the same thing is true for us today. We're saved by God's grace, and then by God's grace we live according to his law. It's the same unified message. So, this is important. When the writer quotes Psalm 95, we can see that that particular account with the Israelites in the wilderness is directly applicable to you. Because you could have the same thing happen to you. Don't let your hearts get hardened. That's what it's saying. And it's just as applicable to you as it was to them way back when. Look at the text and the exact quote from Psalm 95. It's to you, brothers and sisters. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Please see this covenantally. He's talking to the people of God. These aren't just Joe Pagan out on the street. So on the people of God, their hearts were not with me. And so he brought discipline upon them as a result. Think about this for a moment. This is reflecting back to the life of the Israelites. And I know you probably are familiar with the story. But every time I study it again, I'm amazed at the Israelites. I'm amazed. First of all, God says, sends ten amazing plagues to free them from Egypt. Now think about every one of those plagues on their own. Bloody water. Frogs. Gnats. Flies, livestock, boils, hail. Boils! Did you hear I said boils? Hail, locusts, darkness, and finally the death of the firstborn. But as I thought about these miraculous plagues that the people of Israel had to see God doing, notice how he sent the frogs before the gnats. I mean, do you think they're still hanging around? Were they still in your pocket when you got your pants out of the closet? I mean, these are, these are holistic plagues that hit everybody and sent a similar message to everyone. Pharaoh himself, who probably slept with frogs in his bed. What a work God does. Then God opens the Red Sea, if, though the plagues weren't enough, and lets two million people pass through on dry ground and then shuts it up just in time to catch all of Pharaoh's army. I might say the most elite fighting force on earth at that time. No water for three days after this. And what do the people do? They moan and they groan, and God makes the bitter waters of Mara sweet. A little time after that, no food. The people grumble. They moan and they groan. God gives manna from heaven to feed them. No water again. God provides more water. Then that miraculous defeat over the Amalekites. Now that's miraculous. No one could say they beat the Amalekites based on their power. Because remember how it had to happen? When Moses kept his arms up, they'd whoop on him. But as soon as his arms fell, because they got tired, they'd lose. What a vivid expression of pure grace. And so as the people held Moses' arms up, I can imagine this. They'd win. As they fell, they would lose. And ultimately they won. What a picture. Then God leads them to Sinai and gives them an identity as a people. They were slaves, now they're a people. Now they're given a law. Eventually they'll be given land. But now they're given a law, a glorious law. They're given... Explicit instructions about how to worship. There's a tabernacle design in those, in those words in Exodus. There's the design for the priestly order. The design for how to make the Ark of the Covenant. All prefiguring the Messiah who would come. All of this vivid, vivid revelation for them to know how God would save them ultimately. God with us as the concept is there. How do they respond while Moses is going to get the bulk of this revelation? Do they prepare by, by prayer and fasting? By getting together and speaking with one another the truths of God's word, are they focusing on God's word at this time? No, they're burning their jewelry up to make a golden cow to bow down to. Amazing stories. God delivers them to the brink of the promised land, literally within an He sends in 12 spies for the purpose of what? Figuring out how they might take the land, not if they should take the land. And what do ten of them come back? They come back discouraging the whole body of believers by telling them, I don't know about God's promises, but I know about the giants. And we can't get in there. After all this. This is what Psalm 95 speaks of. All this buildup to the day of God's judgment when he says you will not enter this land until a whole generation is wiped out. This unbelieving generation... Brothers and sisters, I pray that this current generation is not the unbelieving generation. We make this, this should not be so, and it should not be for the people of God. But this whole generation, thousands of funerals later, before they're actually able to take the promised land. What a picture. Today, if you hear his voice in verse 7, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. For your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. I've sworn my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. But I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, every time I read that, I just think to myself, Man, am I glad I'm not the Israelites. I mean, I don't do that. I mean, aren't you glad you're not as bad as they are? I mean... We don't doubt the goodness of God ever, right, brothers and sisters? We never grumble against God's leaders, do we? Do we? We never complain about the provisions God has graciously given us. I'm so thankful that we're not like them. We never forget the great wonders that God has wrought. Never mind that we have a whole lot more of them to see than they did, but that's probably why we are so faithful, right? We never worship idols. Whew. We never disregard the clear promises of God and we sure never look at the obstacles instead of the promises. It's a good thing we don't do that, right? Can you imagine if we just didn't do things for the kingdom because we just looked at the obstacles and forgot his promise? Aren't you glad that we're not like the Israelites? Do you see how unified the message of Scripture is? Tell me how it's any different than what we do today. Its applications look a little different, but the same spiritual plague is there possible for us as our hearts grow hard, as we get away from the promises, as we get away from the constant revelation of what he has done, as we get away from witnessing the goodness of God throughout redemptive history and in your own life. That's when our hearts grow hard. The word of God is central. It is key. You cannot say you're growing in Christ if you're not growing in his word. You know what I love about the Bible probably more than anything? It tells me the truth about sin, We so desperately need people to say it like it is today. I don't need someone to tell me, oh, that's all right. I struggle with that too. It's going to kill you, but it's okay. The Bible says it. And look at how the Bible says it in verse 12 and verse 13 of our text Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Look closely. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened. By the deceitfulness of sin. There are a few better phrases in all of the scriptures to speak of sin. The deceitfulness of sin. That's shooting straight. You know, there's a notion about certain sinful activities that says that they're fun and gratifying. In fact, I've heard people who have lived terribly immoral lives before coming to Christ, and in a weak moment, they might say something like, I used to have fun, but now I can't do that anymore. Do you see how deceitful sin is? They were once almost going to die... But that was fun. Now, I know any one instance of sin could feel good, right? But if you know anything about sin, you know that sin, because it's not the will of God, it's not by design, it is meant to, it is designed to exploit and enslave. And so what happens is, you do it once, you say, oh, I can handle this. You do it the second time, and then, the thir- and then it's addiction, and it's slavery, and now you're on the road to death with that thing that felt so good that never, ever ends up being satisfied. You know, just one more human relationship, one more sexual encounter, just one more piece of food, one more car to own, one more one more portfolio to have, and one more, one more, one more, and the idol gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and the deceitfulness of sin is that it can satisfy. And it never can. It never can. And the scripture tells you that straight up. It doesn't pull any punches. This is what will happen if you head down that road. You know, this would be overwhelming if we had no way to see this come about in our lives. It's one thing to tell you all this, but how can our lives change? I think it's there in the text also. Look at verse 12 once more in a new way as we see that the scripture calls us by its own authority to give and then receive biblical accountability. Verse 12: Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, speaking to the congregation, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do you see that one of the main ways that this comes about in our lives is yes, recognizing the word and what it is, but also accountability that comes from the body of Christ? Daily exhortation to and from one another. Look again, it says daily, not not weekly exhortation. Not weekly for one hour exhortation. Everyday interaction with brothers and sisters in Christ that is biblical interaction that moves us. And what is exhortation? Very simply, exhortation is a message of biblical warning or encouragement. It could be warning or encouragement in light of what the scripture says, designed to motivate people in their actions for God. Let me say it again. Exhortation is a message of biblical warning or encouragement designed to motivate persons into action. One writer says, well, the key on being a fellowship, but remember, brothers and sisters, we're an accountable fellowship. One author says, too often we confuse love with permissiveness. It is not love to fail to dissuade another believer from sin any more than it is love to fail to take a drink away from an alcoholic or matches away from a baby. True fellowship, true fellowship, which we want to be, true fellowship out of love for one another demands accountability exhort one another every day it says please please don't be dependent on just showing up sunday and thinking that's my accountability for the week there are other means and modes we have to get together but you could do this on your own with your brothers and sisters in christ in fact the scripture really lays out various examples of accountability structures we should all be part of i want to just show you some of those but personalize it to yourself First of all, there is the accountability of the Word of God with the individual believer. I believe with my whole heart that if any one of you at any time as a believer in Christ picks up his Word, that there is a a ministry that the Holy Spirit does as you read the Word that will change your life. So there is a supernatural accountability between the believer and the Word of God. That's the, the, the front level of accountability. This will hold you accountable. I don't know how many times where I put it off, put it off, and I picked it up, and just the right scripture that the Lord had for me is there. And no matter where I I can open up Leviticus and I would get the same thing. Because that's the power of the Word of God. But there's also the accountability that I, that I would suggest to you is most important, the accountability between husband and wife if you're married. In a healthy biblical marriage, husband and wife have occasion to speak openly and honestly about their spiritual health and life. If you really think that's the most important thing. Not about the activities of the kids, what the bank account says, what your schedule's for the week. But first and foremost, what the spiritual health of you and your family is. There has to be occasion for a healthy couple to have that interaction. My wife should be comfortable saying to me, I know you want to lead our family in the right way, but you've been letting our family worship time slip. I know you're busy. I know you're doing a lot of important things for the kingdom. But the most important thing God gives you for the kingdom is me and your children. She should be comfortable saying that to me, and I should be comfortable receiving that exhortation in a healthy setting. In the same way, she should be comfortable with me saying that in your day, I'd like to have some say in how you ordered your time. I'd like to share, talk with you about how this time can be spent for your own discipleship and for the development of our children. And there shouldn't be a defensiveness about, don't tell me how to spend my day, or any of the things that we might do as individuals in a marriage relationship where both for the same purpose, the glory of God, in his glory shown through our family and through the world. So this accountability, in its right health, can be one of the most powerful ways that we see transformation. I fear that because that is often weakened, that the rest of the forms of accountability I mentioned get swept under the rug. Because if you're weak there, it's going to work its way out in the rest of the things you do, because you're going to feel like a hypocrite. I get up telling you all how to do family devotion together, when if my wife knows I'm not doing them in my house. I mean, what what will I eventually do? I'll just quit telling you to do it. It's not true for me. I'm not that big a hypocrite where I'm going to keep telling you to do something I'm not trying myself. So it tends to break down from that elementary level. But also there's the accountability between members of family with children. Notice what I said. A family is husband and wife. Children are added to that. Children are not the center of the home. Christ is the center of the home. The husband and the wife are under the head Christ and the family, uh, the children are under that. Okay, and so accountability between members of the family with children really can produce incredible spiritual results. In fact, I am learning already from my youngest two-year-old just, just things about God's word and how it works itself out in our lives. And my older son is, is able to confront me in his own young way about inconsistencies that he might see. I better be ready to learn from my children. Because that's accountability God has given me. And I long for the day as I look forward to it. And I think it's going to come quicker than I think. Where they're like almost my peer. Obviously with the respect level scripture requires of him to have for me. But when my son outdistances my religion, outdistances my spiritual growth, and talks to me in a way that I learn from him. And it works every which way within the relationships you have within your household. But also there is the accountability, which is spoken of most in scripture, The accountability that we have between members of a local body of believers. The church is an accountable fellowship. We are related because of Christ. Christ and whatsoever he commands is what brings us under one heading. We hold each other accountable in an official way. When you become a member of the church, you take a vow that you'll submit to the leadership of the church. That's the formal way in which we try to encourage, exhort, and discipline if needed. But also, we hold each other accountable in more private ways making personal relationships with one another in the body of believers. We do this to be more intentional about the specifics of our life that we can't just talk about out here, whether it be a specific ministry for the men of the church, whether it be our home fellowship group structure, uh, a special discipleship for young marrieds. Whatever it is, those are all modes and means to accomplish developing relationships that encourage real accountability, not just how you doing, doing good, and pass. And it's really... Don't complain that the church doesn't have the program. You know what the Bible says. Find those people in your life at these various levels. In fact, I found in my own life that I have mentors from the past that I feel I owe a certain report to on a, on a, a regular basis. I have a pastor I've spoken of often, Pastor Ben. He knows me as, as good as any human being probably knows someone, at least as, a, as an understudy. He knows what problems I have. He knows what temptations uh, assail me. And so when we talk, and it's not often, maybe once a month, I promise you that he goes right for what needs to be said to see how I'm doing. And I owe him as my spiritual mentor to explain to him what's happening in my life. Uh, it breaks down in all sorts of levels. I have at least one person in my life that knows most of it. Pastor Nathan, obviously, is more to me than just a co-worker in the faith. And I wouldn't even call him my best friend because he's really my brother in the ministry. Not just as brothers in Christ. My kids call him Uncle Nathan. Okay, he knows, as much, he's the only one I trust this way, to be honest with you, because we've known each other for so long. But he, has, he, gets, you know, he gets my internet report, you know, my Covenant Eyes report that tells him everywhere I've ever gone. In fact, this morning before I preached, he goes, I got your report. I'm like, uh-oh, is there something I need to know? He called me in the office and we went scroll through the last week. I was embarrassed about the 85 hits at ESPN.com, but nevertheless, <laughs> I have an accountability that when I go to the computer, for instance, and that's just one way it works itself out, but men, that's a huge way. Uh, when I go to it, I know someone's going to look at all this. And it holds me accountable because I'm a sinner who left on my own, I don't even want to know what I do. Accountability. Do you have that person in your life? I can speak particularly for the men. If you don't, you need to get someone. If you don't, you need to get someone. It's true across the board. I say all this to you to recognize that the scripture lays out in grand form and in high doctrine what the scripture is. But it also says very simply, every day exhort one another. How is that working itself out? in your interaction with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I would commit to you, I would commit to you seriously that the stakes could not be higher. Look at the last portion of the text, verse 13 to the end. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. (coughs) For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. See this balance between Christ, our security, in our necessary perseverance. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, and I say this to you, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? In other words, it was not those who saw the plagues, the one who saw the sea open up. We've seen it too, brothers and sisters. We've seen it too. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years! 40 years! Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? You see what's at stake? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. By God's grace, let's not let each other enter anywhere, because not enter anywhere because of unbelief. If you love one another, exhort one another daily. We need it daily. The genuineness of your faith, my dear brothers and sisters, is revealed by your receptivity to the word of God and the direction it gives. And ultimately, this is the way, the scriptures and the accountability of God's people, this is the way that we keep soft hearts instead of growing hard-hearted. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for giving us your word as a guide, as as our life lesson plan. And Lord, I pray that we would live this out amongst the body of believers here called Redeemer.